those. Acts 6 and 7 this morning. We have a protagonist and an antagonist um, that are at the heart of this story. Stephen, who's the champion and spokesman for the cause of Christ versus Saul. It sounds like tag team wrestling here or UFC or something, but, but it's actually much more serious than this. Stephen versus Saul, who, who's the, the, the persecutor and hater of all things Christian. And let's be honest, we all love this good guy, bad guy stuff, right? We all love those stories, whether it's Elliot Ness and Al Capone or Batman versus the Joker and the 89 remakes they've made of that movie. Or um, for the nerds here, a shout out to, to Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort. Yep, that's you. Or even in Tallahassee, we have our own version of good guy, bad guy. Who can remember, nor who can forget that era of the 90s of St. Bobby and Steve Spurrier, we all understand the whole the good guy, bad guy thing. And we love those stories. And the reason we love them, oftentimes, if we're honest, we love it when the good guy wins, right? We love it when there's vindication and he, he or she conquers their, their nemesis and there's closure and the story ends and it's the way things ought to be. However, when things don't end that way, Something seems sort of terribly out of sorts, doesn't it? The pastors, um, we, we saw a movie the other night. It was about a, a deranged, psychopathic killer. And I won't even tell you any more about the movie, except to say we all left that movie deeply disturbed. And not so much about the content. But really, we were really disturbed because this killer, he emerged victorious. And there was no closure. And it was unresolved. And we felt kind of icky and and. To be honest, seemingly, Four Oaks, the same thing is happening in this story. Stephen loses. Saul reigns victorious, which is all the more striking because to this point in the book of Acts, the gospel has, make no mistake about it, gone forth unconquered, and the church is growing, and people are being brought to the Lord, but here... We are introduced to Stephen, who becomes the first martyr of the church, the first one to die for his faith, and the church is scattered. And seemingly, the mission of the gospel is threatened, and evil has triumphed. And this really could have left the church in Acts wondering, Lord, are, are we playing for the right team here? Um, have, are, are we on the right side of history in this thing, God? We're pretty sure we were doing what we were supposed to do. We're pretty sure that we were being faithful. We were, we were pretty sure that we were doing exactly what you told us to do, and now this. And, and let's be honest, personally for some of us, we really resonate with those series of questions, don't we? Um, you might be here this morning, and your life, if you were honest, you would, you would say, it's just not where I thought it would be. My marriage, my kids my career, my finances, my health, whatever. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to do what God had want, has wanted me to do. But seemingly, things have not worked out the way I hoped. Or, or let's, let's dig a little deeper. Maybe you haven't been faithful in your choices. And maybe there's deep regret that sort of hangs over you like, a cloud, and you are really wrestling through, just like this church was wrestling through, Lord, how do I orient here? Where, what is the way forward? How am I to even view where I am at this point in my life? God, have I missed 
your plan. It's something this early church was bound to wrestle with as a result of these events. It's something that we probably all have wrestled with or are wrestling with. And so the title of this message is simply this, Are You on the Right Side of History? captures what the church was wrestling through. It captures where a lot of us have wrestled. And we're going to look at that question through the lens of Stephen and and his life and death and ministry. And there's really just three points of this sermon. They all correspond to different phases of Stephen's life. But we're going to look at Stephen's seizure, you know, where he's imprisoned and grabbed and put on trial. We're going to look at his sermon. And then ominously, we're going to look at his stoning. Stephen's seizure, his sermon, and his stoning. And we need the Lord's help to grab hold of such a big text. Let's go before him and ask him to help us. Lord Jesus, this text is beyond, it's, it's beyond, quite frankly, Lord, my ability to preach it. It's big, it's large, it's meaty. But Lord, even, even beyond that, Lord, it's, it's such a difficult passage for Western 21st century Americans to wrap their brains around that we can be doing exactly what you want us to do, but yet seemingly end up in a place we had not anticipated. So Lord, we need faith. We need a heart of faith. We need eyes to see and ears to hear. And so we ask that you would come now, Holy Spirit. And do a great work of grace in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 6, verse 8. Understand, this is a long passage, and we've broken it up into chunks. Um, This honestly could be two or three sermons, um, but it wouldn't do to break it up because it's a giant story. Parents, it would be like you showing, you know, watching It's a Wonderful Life and then stopping it halfway through and picking it up next Christmas. That movie just doesn't work that way, right? Okay, this passage doesn't work that way. And so we've got, to, we've got to take it on. Acts 6, verse 8. Stephen's seizure. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Men, my question to you is, have you started that early Christmas shopping for your special lady? Has it happened? Okay, Dave Murphy, has it happened for you? No, it has not. Dave just gave me that evil look. But just imagine, men, okay, that you have spent loads of time and energy and money um, on what you believe is that perfect gift for your woman, and turn around, and a week or two after Christmas, you see that gift pop up on your wife's eBay store. How would you respond? No autobiographical <laughs> illusion intended. 
or you see it re-gifted to one of your elders when they come in after Christmas. Or even more horrifying, it shows up the next Christmas in the white elephant gift exchange, right? Okay, so that is the old punch in the gut. The, the person you love the most, you're doing the most for them, and seemingly it's all for naught. And that's really what's happening in this passage. This is a spiritual punch in the gut. Stephen is doing great things. Look at verse 8. It says he is full of grace and of power. He is doing signs and, and wonders. He's seeking to, to serve and minister to the Jews. These are his fellow countrymen. He loves his people, and he wants them to come to know the most profound, life-changing message in the history of the universe. That's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is Israel's appointed, anointed Messiah. And he is laying it all on the line for them. Yet, the very people that he most loves and is trying to help, it is they who now begin to plot against him. They are working behind the scenes. They are conjuring up charges. They are paying off false witnesses, all for one purpose. They want to take him down. You ever had that experience? Some of you might be walking through something very similar. Maybe vocationally or professionally. The person that you've been training for the last six months, you just now discovered you were, you were training your replacement. You ever had that experience? Back in the 90s, UT had a coach named, named Johnny Majors. And he had a heart attack in 1992. Had to step out of the coaching position. And so there was a young whippersnapper offensive coordinator named Philip Fulmer who took his place on an interim basis only to find out by the middle of that season the whole program had turned against coach majors and they all wanted coach Fulmer to be their coach and that is a and that is a point of pain that those two guys carry between themselves to this day and not to mention it is pretty interesting they both go to the same church but that's a whole nother whole nother story guys what motivates people to act like that it's the same thing that motivated the leaders in this passage it is jealousy and selfish ambition and they did not like this attention that stephen and the church was getting so they rose up to oppose him and you're going to notice a progression in this passage and i'm going to note this because i think it's particularly important for understanding how things work for us culturally around these sorts of issues you notice there's like a three-phase progression here first of all there is a theological debate there is a disagreement which is not necessarily bad look in verse 10 though it says they could not stand up to his wisdom and spirit that's just code for stephen took them to the carpet okay stephen kicked theological something right okay he 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 threw down. He was winning the argument. And because they could not win the argument with him, what did they do? Number two, they reverted to personal attacks and charges. If you can't destroy the message, what do you do? You go after the messenger. And then finally, if that doesn't work, they, you just shut somebody down. Legally, professionally, civilly, whatever, whatever the case happens to be. That's the name of the political game in our culture, right? We don't have debates anymore debate is when you bring two opposing sides to the table and you weigh the merits of each that's not it's not all it's not about debate anymore in our culture guys it's about power 
Whoever holds the power wins the debate. And that's exactly what is happening here. Unless we think, though, that Stephen was being culturally rude or he was too bold or he had brought all this stuff upon himself or, Stephen, you should just tone it down, man. Um, we live in a postmodern pluralistic culture. Don't, don't you know who you're dealing with, Stephen? Make no mistake, Four Oaks. Stephen is doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And in verse 15, it says, Stephen's face shone like an angel. And here, we, it's clear Luke is hearkening back to that time when who? In the Old Testament, Moses, as God's messenger and prophet, his face shone. And it was a sign of God's approval. It was a sign of God's sanction on what Moses was doing. And it's the same thing here. However, and this is important to note, Stephen, in doing what God had called him to do, ignites a series of events that, as we shall see, ultimately results in his very death. Now here's an important spiritual lesson for us, folks, before we leave this point. You and I can be doing exactly what God wants us to do, and things still not work out the way we think they should. And that's a sobering thought. Because there's a cultural myth. And the myth goes something like this. If people or if we live our lives in a certain way, we eat the right food, we make the right financial investments, we get the, take the proper security cautions, we get the right alarm system installed in our house, that we can somehow insulate ourselves, right, from harm. Um, if we can exercise a certain measure of control over our lives, we can mitigate any bad stuff that might happen to us. And this myth, let's be honest, has really seeped down into the Christian community too. Because a lot of us, even if we don't say it, it's probably somewhere back there in our minds. And it goes something like this. If I do what God wants me to do, if I'm faithful, I know that I will be materially rewarded. Maybe not money, but it could be money. But my kids will be a certain way, and my marriage will be a certain way, and my career will be a certain way, and my life will be a certain way. And what the story of Stephen tells us and teaches us is that we can be doing exactly, exactly, to a T, what God has called us to do, but things may not end the way that we think they're supposed to end. Because many self-professing Christians have fallen away from the faith because they haven't understood this most fundamental point. They have walked away sad, just like the rich young ruler. They've walked away embittered, they end up asking spiritually catastrophic questions. Am I playing for the right side? Am I on the right side of history here, Lord? This is not turning out the way it should be. Is that you? Is that me? Stephen's sermon, second point, I think, can help us here. Let's look. We're not going to read the whole sermon, but I am going to lift out certain excerpts that kind of encapture the whole 
flavor of what's happened. We've just read that the Jewish leaders had accused Stephen of blasphemy. And basically their charge was just something, something like this. That they, they accused Stephen of tearing down the Old Testament law, of tearing down the champion of the Old Testament law, Moses. Um, they accused Stephen of advocating um, the fact that we do not need, or the Jewish people no longer needed to worship God in a specific place, a la the temple. And so this whole section in chapter 7, Stephen's sermon, is an apologetic. It's, it's, it's meant to respond to these two very, very serious charges of blasphemy and heresy. And the way Stephen does this is he traces out all of Old Testament history. He focuses on Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David, and he responds to their charges. Let's look at how he responds to these accusations that he was teaching something that was not in the Old Testament or in the Bible. Okay, look at Acts seven forty-eight through 50. And here he's speaking about the temple. He says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? And here's the clincher line. Did not my hand make all these things? In other words, Stephen is, Stephen is quoting this and saying, hey, you want to build a temple, but God had made it very clear from the very beginning that the temple was just a precursor. The temple was just a sign. The temple was a symbol. One day, um, all the world is my temple. One day, it's not just the Jews worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem that are worshiping God. It's every person of every tongue, tribe, and nation all over the world. The church is not a place. The church is its people. And wherever they are gathered, they are there to worship. He's saying, listen, Jewish leaders. God's not concerned about where you worship him. He's concerned about how you worship him. Do you worship him with your heart, right? Jump down to Acts 7, 37 through 39. And here he's addressing this issue that he's tearing down the law or Moses. 37, he said, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles, that's Moses, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. And here's Stephen's point. You say you love the law. You say you love Moses. But you've never obeyed him. You've never obeyed the law. Your predecessors never obeyed the law. You have rebelled against Moses himself. And his whole point in all of this, for Oaks, is to say this. That the law and the temple are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when Moses pointed the way to a future prophet who would come and lead his people, Stephen is saying, in essence, that is Jesus that is your Messiah. And if you knew your Bibles better, you would know this. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come to replace 
the temple. He has come to fulfill the law. He is, he is here to give you something much better because from the very beginning, God has been on a mission to create a people for himself. And here is his charge against the, the Israelites, and this is so serious. He says, at every point, religious leaders, you have been on the wrong side of history. Look at what he says in verse 51 in Acts 7. He says, you stiff-necked people. Not the way to win friends and influence people, right? Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They were saying, Stephen, you're on the wrong side of history, buddy. and We're going to have to take you down for it. And Stephen and Ephesus saying, no, 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 no. It's not me who's on the wrong side of history. It's you who are on the wrong side of history because you've missed the Word of God. See, guys, the religious leaders, it would be very easy to assume they knew the Old Testament. And on one level, they did. They knew a lot of facts. But there was something really deficient about their knowledge of God's Word. And we need to pay really really careful attention because I think we're probably I'm probably addressing a room that is full of people who have some level of basic Bible knowledge and facts but here's the deal they may have known facts from God's word but they did not know or ascertain the very character of God you see their knowledge was not a doorway or a pathway to communion with God. The Bible was a, was a manual of facts to be learned so they could pride themselves in it and memorize Bible verses and have exercises of intellectualism and superiority. They didn't care about knowing God. This was not a pathway to know the heart of God. And because they didn't know the heart of God, they missed it. That God had a heart for the nations. And that he was creating a people. And that he sent a Savior to die for the sins of the world. And Stephen is appealing to these Scriptures, Four Oaks. And he is drawing lessons from Old Testament history that these leaders had absolutely no idea, never exposed to, never considered. They didn't recognize them because they didn't recognize God. Fundamentally, they were on the wrong side of history because they didn't know his words. Guys, let me make some some cultural applications, and then in a minute I'll make some personal applications. Let me make some corporate applications to this idea of being on the wrong or the right side of history. That is, by the way, a, a, a prev- this is a very common refrain often directed against the church or conservative evangelical Christians as it relates to sexuality as it relates to same-sex marriage. And what do you often hear? You're on the wrong side of history. You better be careful. Think about all the sins of the church in the past, and you were on the wrong side of history then. You're going to be on the wrong side of history now. And if we don't know how to process that, if we don't know how to interpret that, if we don't know where to go in God's Word for that, we're going to really miss it. We're going to stumble. We are going to to fall into the theology 
of silence. And as we know from Stephen's example, that is not where God wants us to land. We do have to confess right off, though, there have been many times in the past where the church has been on the wrong side of history. Let's just admit it. We, because of Jesus Christ, we have the power to admit our mistakes and sins and find mercy and grace there. Slavery, racism, many, many other sins. The Crusades of a thousand years ago. Why was the church on the wrong side of history then? I think it has to go back to the idea that sometimes God's people can be so steeped in the culture and in the world, so vested in our way of viewing things, that we simply don't let the Word of God have its way. Four Oaks, sidebar, are you letting the Word of God speak to you unfiltered and unadulterated into your heart and life? See, guys, there's been eras of the church's life, and it's always tempted to go this way, to look at the Word of God through the prism of a particular issue versus looking at their issues through the prism of God's Word. Does that make sense? What, one, one equation is life, and the other is absolutely always positively spiritual death. Make no mistake. When we have this charge levied against us that we're on the wrong side of history, and I'll use the, the, the example of same-sex marriage, this is not about sexuality per se. It's about authority. It's about truth. It's about accountability. Will we view, and I'm going to use sexuality as, as the example here, but it can be any host of, of cultural issues or personal issues for you or me. Will we view our sexuality through the filter of God's Word? Or will we view God's Word through the filter of our sexuality? Because I am totally convinced that one day we will look back on this era with the issue of abortion. And we will see so clearly that we were on the right side of history. And it may not be in our lifetime. It may be 50, 100, 150, 300 years that we will equate this issue and you just fill in the blank of whatever cultural issue that our culture resonates around. Racism, slavery, child abuse, slave trafficking, sex trafficking, you name it. I firmly believe it. Why do I believe that? Because I believe that we are on the right side of God's Word. And when we are on the right side of God's Word, it doesn't make it easy. And as we find out with Stephen... It can, it can mean dire earthly consequences. Here's a great quote from Herschel York. Every day Noah was building the ark, someone told him he was on the wrong side of history. Is that not true? How did Noah know he was on the right side of history? The Word of God. And let me ask you a question. Do you know your Bible enough? Do I know my Bible enough to know the difference. I want to take this opportunity just to commend a group of people in our church. Um, this past fall, I don't know if you're aware of this, we probably had seven or eight women's Bible studies under Debbie Cunningham's leadership um, going throughout the fall semester. And this represented, I don't know, over 100 women. Is that right, Debbie? Something like that? You can just make something up right now and it'll be okay. Okay, no, it's over 100 women. 
And these are women who are committed to studying the Word of God. These are, committed, these are women committed to letting the Word of God have its way in their lives. Because we have groups of men studying the Bible in men's studies during the course of the week. Um, these, are, these are all people who have said, God, I want your word to have its way in my life. I, want to, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I want to be on the right side of history, whatever, whatever the consequences. Um, women, you can mark this on your calendar, January 10th, um, the second Saturday in, in January. There's going to be a half-day conference, and, and what is the theme? It's going to be all about studying God's word, treasuring God's word, applying God's word. Folks, a lot of times we make the Christian life so complicated. Stephen doesn't make it complicated, but he does, by his actions, raise the issue for us. Sometimes it's hard, and we need God's grace, particularly when we consider what happens in our third and last point. Let's look there, Acts 7.54, Stephen's stoning. Now, when they heard these things, they all repented, right? (laughs) Is that what happened? No, when they heard these things, they were what? Enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man, here he is, named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great limitation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. On this last point, Folks, as we wind up, I want to return to the series of comments I made at the beginning of this sermon when I said this. Maybe you find today your life is not where you thought it would be. Your marriage, your kids, your career, your finances. Maybe you were faithful or faithless. Regardless, today you have a deep sense of some sort of spiritual cloud or regret or guilt or something along those lines. And you were here today asking, Pastor Paul, how do I make sense of where, of where I am? Have I missed God's plan for my life? Am I on the wrong side of history here? I think when we look at the death of Stephen, there's so much, Christian, that I think we can draw encouragement from, particularly when we consider how similar the death of Stephen is with the death of whom? Jesus. Consider for a second these parallels. 
both Jesus and Stephen were unjustly accused. They had charges brought against them. They had false witnesses who testified about things that were not true. They both stood a trial. They both experienced gruesome deaths. Interesting that at the end of both of their lives, they each had similar things to say. Stephen says here, Lord, commit, I commit my spirit to you. It's very similar to what Jesus said. Stephen also says, Lord, forgive them. And again, that echoes the words of Jesus on the cross. But there's one final similarity that I want to draw our attention to that I think provides great hope and encouragement for us, if we can say it that way. One final similarity. Brooks, did you realize it was God's perfect will for both Stephen and Jesus to die? Acts 2, Peter says this in his sermon. He says, Jesus Christ was crucified by the hands of sinful men according to what? God's predetermined plan. Here in this passage, Stephen dies and Luke tells us that he has a vision of who's standing in heaven. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is giving approval to this death of Stephen. He is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. This was God's will for Stephen. And the implications of this are profound. Because I want you to look at verse 3 in chapter 8. It says that Saul at this point in the story is ravaging the church. He is killing Christians and he is winning. He thought he was on the right side of spiritual history, did he not? But Acts 9 is coming here in a couple of weeks. And Paul is going to discover that really he's on the wrong side of spiritual history. However, and, and listen to this, his, Paul's disobedience or Saul's disobedience and rebellion were the very things that God used to accomplish his ultimate purpose with the church. You see, remember back Acts 1? Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses where? In just Jerusalem? No, no. Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what did the church do after they were saved? Where did they go? They hunkered down right in Jerusalem. And so God sends this persecution upon the church. And here in Acts, we read how they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. Hence became the greatest missionary movement in the history of the world. See, guys, many of us have made choices where we feel we are on the wrong side of spiritual history. You might be here this morning, you feel like your life's been ravaged. Um, Maybe you're here and you feel like you've ravaged others. But Paul's story, Saul's story, Four Oaks, can be our story. Saul, full of sin and rebellion and terrible choices. Choices that he would reference back to for the rest of his life as a testimony to the mercy and grace of God. He would point back to the very things that separated him from God. His murdering ways, his carnage, his poor choices, his hardened heart. And yet we can point to them as the very things that God used to spread the gospel. They are the very things that God used 
to save Paul and to show him his incredible need for grace. For Oaks, even when you were on the wrong side of spiritual history with your, spirit, with your, your sinful choices, it is through these choices, despite these choices, through these choices, that God is orchestrating his good and perfect will for your life. God orchestrated it through the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus to bring something amazing for his people. And as we come to the table this morning, I'll leave you this word. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, you are not on the wrong side of spiritual history. You are right where God wants you to be. And he's going to mold you, and he's going to shape you, and he is going to lead you, and he may even discipline you, And he may um, continue to exhort and push and mold and shape. But you belong to him. Paul belonged to him. Stephen belonged to him. Because of Jesus Christ, who from a human perspective was on the wrong side of history, killing, being killed as the Savior of all mankind, but it's through his death that this morning we have life right here.